This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by University of California Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is America Goddamn by Treva B. Lindsay. Combining history, theory, and memoir, Black feminist historian Treva B. Lindsay starkly assesses the forms and legacies of violence against Black women and girls in the United States today, as well as their demands for justice. Black women have led movements demanding justice for Breonna Taylor, Sandra Bland, Toyin Salau, Rhea Milton, Ayanna Stanley-Jones, and countless other Black women and girls whose lives have been curtailed by violence. Across generations and centuries, Black women have refused to remain silent and have envisioned and worked toward Black liberation through organizing and radical politics. Echoing the energy of Nina Simone's searing protest song that inspired the title, America Goddamn is a call to action in our collective journey toward just futures. America Goddamn by Treva B. Lindsay, out now from University of California Press. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Under capitalism, prices tell us what to do, which products to buy, to whom we must sell our labor, where we live, the clothes we wear, what sort of education and healthcare we receive, how we spend our free time, and whether we have any free time at all, when and how we die. Fundamentally, the price of the labor that workers must sell to survive, measured against the price of the commodified means of subsistence, is what imposes upon workers what Marx described as the double freedom under capitalism, the freedom to either work or to starve. When the price that one receives for one's labor falls below the price of food, people riot and revolt. The first attempt to create a free market for bread in 1775 produced the world's first modern price war, a series of riots across King Louis XVI's France known as the Flower Wars. The class war is always a price war, including when the British Empire applied the same liberalized framework by way of free trade to colonized India, killing millions by famine. In contemporary Britain, Scholar Ben Ansel found that house prices predicted whether an area voted stay or leave on Brexit. Another study by Ansel and David Adler discovered that the same factor predicted how people voted in the 2016 election. Declining home prices predicted a vote both for Brexit and for Trump. Political and social conflict is not reducible to economics, but it can never be unmoored from that raw materiality either. As Marx wrote in the 18th Brumaire, quote, Upon the different forms of property, upon the social conditions of existence, rises an entire superstructure of distinct and peculiarly formed sentiments, illusions, modes of thought, and views of life. My guests today, Rupert Russell and Isabella Weber, pull that curtain of illusions aside in a discussion of Rupert's book, Price Wars, How the Commodities Markets Made Our Chaotic World. 
Price Wars is a remarkable book that reassesses the past couple decades of world history to show how the deregulation of commodities under Bill Clinton led to the financialization of markets in everything from wheat to oil, allowing speculators to push commodities prices onto a boom-and-bust roller coaster that has caused hunger, revolution, war, clientelism, and riots. We also discuss the present politics of inflation and why, after the Fed shredded monetary orthodoxy in response to the 2008 financial crisis, and then again at a greater scale amid the pandemic, central bankers are returning to a tight money policy that will punish workers, bludgeoning labor with a macroeconomic hammer in the face of what are in reality sector-specific supply shocks. But first, we at The Dig are committed to making every episode of the podcast free to everyone because we want you to be able to listen to the podcast, even if you can't afford to contribute. The only reason we can afford to do that, however, is because those of you who can contribute do so at patreon.com slash the dig. If you can afford to contribute, please contribute what you can. Even a dollar a month is fine. Any donation of any size at all gets you our weekly newsletter, which is a really well-written short essay expanding on the ideas raised in the show and suggesting for you future readings and listenings. If you do contribute $10 or more a month, we will send you tangible goods in the mail, a book or books, a tote bag, a coffee mug. If you listening right now depend on the dig, please know that we depend on our listeners. Contribute now at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Rupert Russell and Isabella Weber. Rupert Russell is a writer, filmmaker, and author of Price Wars, How the Commodities Market Made Our Chaotic World. Isabella Weber is a professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and the author of how China Escaped Shock Therapy, which I interviewed her on on the podcast last year. I will include a link to that episode in the show notes. Also, you may hear Rupert's adorable puppy whining in the background at times. The puppy is indeed very cute, and I have also posted a link to a photo of said cute puppy in the show notes. Rupert Russell and Isabella Weber, welcome to The Dig. Thanks so much for having us, Ben. Great to be here. Rupert, your book focuses on the chaos that speculators wreak on commodity and financial markets to make a really bold assessment of, well, I guess like the past few decades of the entire world's history, from the Arab Spring and the rise of ISIS to Russian military interventions and the collapse of Venezuela's economy, quote, price spikes in food and oil triggered crises, and these crises were then priced into the markets, only to create yet another spike and another crisis. Chaos in the commodities market and chaos in the real world fed off each other. Before we get into a lot of details and a lot of history, let's define some key things. What are commodities? And then what sorts of markets and market actors shape their production, distribution, and price? Sure. So when we're talking about commodities, we're really tr talking about the internationally traded commodities. So that would be uh, oil, gas, uh, primarily for energy, metals, 
And of course, foodstuffs, right? So you'd have wheat, corn and so forth. And of course, and of what they also call softs, and that would include things like coffee and sugar. So each of these commodities is, if you like, something which can be interchanged with each other, right? So the idea is, is that wheat in Russia or Ukraine or the United States is more or less interchangeable, right? These are homogenous goods. And because they're homogenous, they can have a single global price. And traditionally, these prices have been set on the exchanges in just a few places. So that would be Chicago, London and and Atlanta. Now, over time, how these prices are formed has changed. And traditionally, and when I say traditionally, I'm thinking really around the bulk of the 20th century from Roosevelt's era when he enacted certain regulations on the markets to when they were deregulated in 2000, approximately 80% of the people trading in these commodities, that is essentially people who are setting the prices, are people who are dealing with the physical things, right? So that could be farmers, that could be oil men, that could also be people involved in transportation, it could also be in various production parts of the economy as well, whether it's kind of oil refineries, but that could also include, you know, big hotel chains, bakeries, supermarkets, and so forth. So these would be people who are really used to dealing with these commodities in kind of the physical real world. And around 20% of the market was made up with what are kind of called speculators. They were introduced in the 19th century to perform a very crucial function in the markets, and that's to provide liquidity. And what that essentially means is that when a farmer wants to go and sell his future harvest uh, so that he can get a guaranteed price in the future, so he can get a loan from the bank and go and you know hire the farmhands to you know get it out of the ground and to Chicago, um, he knows he's got a guaranteed a guaranteed price. Now it may be that when he goes to Chicago to do this, um, there may not be a bakery or a supermarket or a hotel chain who wants to, you know, essentially buy this contract. And that's where speculators were important because they would sort of, the idea was they'd always be available, right? So that the farmers would always have somebody to sell to. And on the flip side, those buyers would also have somebody to buy the contracts from when when they wanted it. And in reward for this, they would get, um, they had to they had to pay essentially a premium because they were taking on risk, right? So everyone kind of won. The farmers got security and the speculators got a discount. And this machine ran, in my opinion, relatively well um, from the 1930s to, to 2000. And then what happened in 2000 was uh, Greenspan, Larry Summers and other senior figures of the Clinton administration decided to scrap these rules that were instituted by Roosevelt. They did so because they wanted to essentially make sure that other derivatives, those that related to things like currencies, mortgage-backed securities, other financial assets, would never be re- re- regulated. And commodities were sort of like an afterthought to this, right? So they kind of just tacked on energy and metals uh, because they were a, a sort of part of like a big package. And then what's happened since is that we've had uh, extraordinary volatility in the commodity markets as sort of speculators who are pretty divorced from the physical production. They could be based in London, they could be based in New York, they could even be based in Singapore. These traders could also not even be people. In fact, the majority of the pro- the majority of them are probably algorithms for all we know. And 
since the sort of floodgates of speculation have opened, we've seen sort of unprecedented volatility. And what I kind of track in my book is how this has two effects. One is it amplifies price shocks. So one we could be seeing right now with the war in uh the war, the, war, the war in Ukraine, we're seeing the oil price jump up and down by $20, 30 a barrel a day. But we're also seeing the uh, prices respond to almost fictional stories, right? These could be financial stories about diversification, around fears of inflation, around fears of a recession. And so essentially what we've seen is that as commodity prices have become unmoored from reality, they've become chaotic and they've come to am- amplify that chaos in the real world. Commodity prices have been rising since, I think, late 2020 and then have skyrocketed in recent weeks. Supply chain disruptions have played a role, of course, and rising oil prices pushed up food prices. And then, of course, came the Russian invasion. According to a recent report from the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, quote, as many as 25 African countries, including many least developed countries, import more than one-third of their wheat from the two countries at war. For 15 of them, the share is over half. But those skyrocketing commodity prices aren't just a matter of disrupted supply and too much demand. What role have investors taking what are called long positions on commodities, meaning that they purchase derivatives, betting that prices will rise? What role has that played in pushing prices through the roof? To be honest, since we're in the middle of the storm, it can be very difficult to tell. And I think in the years um, after this, we'll be able to get a much better sense. I would suspect that a lot of the volatility that we're seeing across the board in terms of not just commodity prices, but it could also be the stock market, equities, bonds and so forth, is being driven by algorithmic responses to news headlines. Right. So investors have always responded to the news. In fact, that's sort of what they're supposed to do. Right. They're supposed to take information that's coming into the marketplace and through their trade, they're supposed to factor that in to prices. So, you know, when new information comes, like, for example, there's going to be a disruption in Ukraine's wheat exports, even a, a completely rational model of the of of prices would predict that prices would, 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 would go up as speculators anticipate uh, real shortages. And this sort of brings us to sort of the next part of this is sort of what is real. And currently, um, it doesn't look like there are sort of massive uh, global food shortages, right? Simply because it takes time to get food from Ukraine or Russia or other parts of the world to those countries that you mentioned. What does happen instantaneously, however, is the price changes, right? So even though there might not be real disruptions, in fact, who knows, this war could end tomorrow, it could end in a year, none of us know. But the prices do respond immediately and they travel at the speed of light, right? So suddenly that exchange in Chicago is transmitting prices everywhere. And merchants are looking to these sort of Chicago-based prices, if you like, as a kind of guide, right? People kind of look to the futures market as sort of the world's best uh, benchmark for what things should cost. And so what you end up seeing is rising prices across the Middle East and, of course, sub-Saharan Africa as well, as people anticipate these prices. Then what happens is you then have a bunch of cascading effects on the ground, right? So if a rumour is going around Cairo, for example, the international prices are shooting up because there'll be some future disruption, then people will be looking to hoard 
uh, grains, right? You'll have a black market develop, even though there's a subsidy system. And then that scarcity becomes very real on the ground, and it sort of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so if you like, the, the way in which the market's responding, even if it's even if it's rationally responding without kind of, you know, algorithmic amplification, what the commodity markets are doing is they're taking this crisis in one part of the world and they're transmitting it to the rest of the world, regardless of whether or not there is actually going to be a change in the, you know, the real scarcity of wheat or food. Isabella? Yeah, um, I think in addition to Rio, a key phrase here is rational, right? And we tend to think of prices as these signaling mechanisms that somehow gather information in this very decentralized way. And because market actors are reaching into all corners of the world, like somehow in the emergence, uh, this price system provides rational signals that, that guide the economy in some sort of rational fashion. Now, Currently, we are in a situation of fundamental uncertainty and various overlapping emergencies, so that the question of what would be a rational price is really um, even more complicated than it would be in normal times, quote unquote, normal times. And at the same time, this idea that you can't just like gather these pieces of information and then come up with some sort of a good market solution seems to also be pretty fundamentally disrupted in the middle of this um, very, very severe turmoil that we find ourselves in. So in, in, in that context, I mean, everything that Rob would say, I, I'm seconding, I'm just thinking that this raises um, pretty uh, deep questions about whether markets can function under the kind of, dis the, the kind of conditions that Rob just um described. So, the, I mean, Isabella, that brings up a really important point that Rupert talks about in his book. How how do stories about rising or falling prices become self-fulfilling prophecies divorced from any underlying fundamentals? And why, even though there's this, this mismatch between the speculative bets and the fundamentals, is it still rational for investors to make those bets? In the sort of rational, efficient market hypothesis conception of prices, the idea is, is that prices instantly reflect the sort of best information available to market actors, right? And that's kind of the rational engine. Now, it may be that that information is wrong, right? So it may be that, for example, in Ukraine, it looks like there's going to be a peace treaty tomorrow and markets respond. And then the next day it gets it gets called off or somebody uh, does something to invalidate it. So prices can be wrong, but the sort of efficient market hypothesis would say that, you know, there are kind of the best guess that one could have about the future. And I suppose that would be the kind of rational component to it. The critique of this was made many years ago by Keynes in the 1930s. And he like he likens the spe speculative markets to a game played in a newspaper. Um, the example is misogynistic, but I'm going to say it anyway because I think it's I think it's still a great analogy. The example was um, there was this game in newspapers where people had to guess which was the prettiest girl, right? They would kind of print these photographs or I guess drawings then of these different women and then the readers had to say not who they thought the prettiest was but who the other players thought the prettiest was and so it's a kind of you're guessing other people's guesses 
And that is kind of the reality of how all speculative markets work, whether we're sort of talking about Bitcoin or houses or commodities. It's all essentially the same. The, 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 the traders are trying to guess what the other traders are thinking, because ultimately it's not information that drives prices. It's traders bet that that drive prices. And so once you start getting into this mentality, you can then begin to see where it can be rational to be wrong. And the example I sort of give in my book, um, which is sort of very vivid, and I got this from a sort of on background call from a hedge fund manager I was talking to, and he said, go and look at the uh, relationship between Anne Hathaway's film career and Berkshire Hathaway, right? That's Warren Buffett's uh, holding company. And um, so I did some Googling on this and sure enough, there was an article where people had, had sort of found that every time one of Anne Hathaway's films opened or she had hosted the Oscars, there was a bump of around between half a percentage point and one and a half percentage points in uh, <laughs> Warren Buffett's stock, right? So essentially what was happening is you have these kind of algo computers I mentioned earlier, and they're scanning headlines, right? They're scanning Bloomberg, they're scanning the FT, Reuters, all the all of the wire services, and they're looking to trade on information. And they do this by sort of attaching sentiment. So if they see Hathaway positive sentiment, that means buy Berkshire Hathaway, right? And of course, the inverse is also true. And Hathaway got into a car crash, and that day Ber Berkshire Hathaway stock went down as well, right? And even though the people uh, programming these algos know that they can sometimes be wrong, it doesn't really necessarily matter because everyone else is doing it, right? Because what you're trying to anticipate is not kind of the reality of Berkshire Hathaway and how it may or may not relate to Anne Hathaway. You're trying to guess what the other algos are doing. And so this is where you get into this kind of halls of mirrors of sort of financial markets. And this is what, you know, uh, Robert Schiller has spent his entire career looking at is how these kind of narratives can kind of become these self-fulfilling prophecies. And although they may be drawn from plausible stories, stories that sound correct, that feel plausible at the time, they're often not correct. But it, it doesn't really matter because how you win this game is guessing the bets of other people. And so that's how you can kind of sustain this divergence with, with reality and prices over time. Yeah, according to the efficient markets hypothesis, as you just mentioned, Rupert and the famous formulation of neoliberal economist Frederick Friedrich Hayek, um, as you write, Rupert, quote, prices create a spontaneous order all around us. They tell us what to do. And so the idea here is that prices are this unparalleled tool to gather and synthesize information so as to efficiently direct the economy in a way that is, according to Hayek and his ilk, far more democratic than electoral democracy. Isabella, why, why did a certain set of economists come to believe that prices function this way? Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing is that, of course, this is a core Hayekian belief, but even in schools of thought that we would consider to be diametrically opposed to Hayek, the movement of market prices is considered as an important information gathering advice. It wouldn't be connected to this ideological interpretation that this is democratic. Um, but nevertheless, um, economists across a, a whole spectrum of um, uh, schools of economic thought would um, emphasize the importance of prices as information gathering devices. And they are important information gathering devices in many ways. The problem is um, that if the kind of dynamics that Rupert was just describing 
are taking on a life of their own, um, this can uh, create, in some sense, a world of its own. And this becomes most problematic if you are in an environment as we are right now, where these um, algorithmic relationships that you observe in the past, which are based on one regularity or another, some of these regularities might be fairly nonsensical, others might be um, relatively intuitive, are no longer prevailing because there's so much interruption in the workings of the system that um, these regularities that these bets are based on just simply are no longer following the same kind of logics as they did in the past, which means that in, in this current environment, it's kind of really everybody's get bad what's going to happen, which means that it becomes even more detached um, from quote unquote real foundations than it would be um, in, in, in more regular type of um, environment. Rupert, the, the Arab Spring, beginning with Tunisia, is a key historical example in your book. You write, quote, the food price spike had been the trigger, but it was no longer the cause. It was the final grain of sand that dislodged all the grievances that had built up year after year. Decades of corruption, surveillance, torture, and religious persecution were now out in the open. What was first called the Thwart al-Qobs, the bread revolution, became the all-encompassing Jasmine revolution. Bread isn't just bread. It is the cornerstone of the social contract between the rulers and the ruled across the Middle East. This social contract was part of an authoritarian bargain, whereby security was traded for freedom and people enjoyed the democracy of bread rather than the democracy of the vote. You continue, quote, Only those regimes that offered the most generous packages survived, and this generosity was dependent upon another commodity, oil. How did or does the bread-based social contract function? And then how did speculator-driven chaos in the commodities market, first in 2008 and again in 2010, then put that social contract under such severe stress? Because again, it was not a straightforward supply-not-meeting-demand problem. The world produced a record quantity of food in 2007. The social contracts, or the democracy of bread as it's also known, was actually a kind of a uh, response to colonialism, especially during the interwar pit period. So the sort of the British and French in the Middle East that needed the cooperation of the locals sort of set up essentially subsidised bread systems. And this was a, a huge break with what had been there before, which was uh, the kind of, you know, Victorian era a free market system whereby if you didn't have the food to eat, you couldn't eat and you starved. And sort of during the war wartime, they had to set up a kind of a system that was slightly more popular with the locals. And it ended up becoming adopted by... Uh, revolutionaries such as of Nasser in Egypt is the cornerstone of their of their new regimes, and so you had on the one hand uh, food subsidies pro provided by the state. So when the state was importing food from abroad, they would essentially sell it at a discounted price, and often went also with sort of various different forms of job or wage guarantees to make sure people could afford it. Now, that regime had been underneath stress for many decades for many different reasons. Sometimes it was the IMF coming in and imposing sort of structural adjustment programs and slashing them, and then there'd be riots, and then they 
sort of came back in in a sort of lesser form. But there was also just, you know, plain old corruption and sort of institutional decay as well. So that by 2010, it was already in pretty poor shape, these subsidy systems in the Middle East. There was a rampant black black market. There was a lot of reselling. And then in 2010, of course, there's this huge food price spike. And many of these regimes are very, very slow to respond to it, right? So essentially what you start seeing is is rising food prices. And this had been building on the financial crisis of 2008-9 that had already kind of sparked a global recession. And then before that, the 2008 global food crisis. And the way that I think about it is you essentially have these three detonations coming from finance in sort of quick succession. And when you look at surveys, a sort of global hunger, you begin to see it rising 2008-9-10. And then you then get this kind of avalanche effect, right? Where suddenly there's this kind of this sense that the social contract is broken. And what that unleashes is resentments that have been building for decades. So the argument isn't as it's sometimes presented that, you know, people can't afford to eat or they're hungry and that's why they go out and sort of riot. It's more that sort of the poverty increases, people begin to kind of reassess their lives and they begin to sort of all those resentments that have, have been building up of which they're a manifold kind of come to the surface. And it ends up having this avalanche effect, right? So in Tunisia, I went there in 2014, um, and I interviewed people. I went to City City Busi where the Arab Spot started, and you still heard people complaining about inflation then. But it was also wrapped up with all kinds of different different grievances, right? So the the previous regime was very uh, anti-religious. It was very corrupt. They hadn't invested. And so what ends up happening is you see the same story happening in country after country after country, right? Where these regimes are all based on a similar social model of the democracy of bread at precisely the same time it all begins to break down because you've got a global food price shock which affects uh, the Middle East, Sub-Saharan Africa, Asia, even Latin America, especially those places like Egypt and Tunisia that import a huge amount of their of their wheat so they're extremely sensitive to these international prices. The last piece of this which you mentioned is the regimes that survive. So, you know, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait in particular, they were able to kind of upgrade the social contracts lavishly, right? So people were simply handed, protesters I interviewed in Kuwait were sort of handed tens of thousands of of dollars, essentially, to kind of go back home. Huge numbers of uh, homes were, were, were promised in Saudi Arabia. Free food was promised for, I think, 13 months. And that was kind of enough to kind of get people kind of off the streets. And the countries that didn't have that oil wealth, right, so that'd be Tunisia, Egypt, to an extent Syria as well, those were the regimes that couldn't upgrade their social contracts, and they're the ones that sort of ultimately fell. Now, Syria and Libya are interesting cases because on top of that, you also have foreign intervention, right? So Iran and Russia rush to prop up Assad in Syria before he has the same fate as Mubarak. And in Libya, of course, it's the NATO bombings that kind of finish off finish off Gaddafi. And so what you see is you see a political regime based on this democracy of bread, supported by essentially oil profits. And the thing that I found fascinating about this is that both of these elements of order are essentially dictated by people outside of this region in New York and London. And this wasn't just true of the Arab Spring, though it's a particularly dramatic and relatively recent example, research, you write, has found that the price of food can predict riots globally throughout history. 
yes, that's right. You saw a lot of this happening in, in sub-Saharan Africa. You see this happening in Asia, India in particular. Even Italy in 2008 was rocked by pasta protests. And as you mentioned, this is a, this is a historical phenomenon, right? This isn't new in the 1970s, and the 1980s. As I mentioned earlier, these kind of IMF structural adjustment programs usually required cutting of food and fuel subsidies, and that also led to riots and revolutions. One famous example was 1984, Bourguiba, then the dictator of Tunisia, got himself into trouble with borrowing too much money. He couldn't afford to pay it back. The IMF comes in, forces him to cut uh, food subsidies, and there's huge riots. They're violently repressed, and it kind of weakens his his regime so much so, so that Ben Ali uh, can kind of uh, become president a few years later in 19. 87. And of course, it's a huge irony that it's the exact same uh, neglect of bread prices that leads to his downfall in 2011 as well. And you could really go all the way back, I guess, to the 1780s or so in France. Absolutely. Yeah. At the end of the book, I do look at the history of this and I look at, you know, from the general crises of the 17th century, right through to the kind of tumultuous 18th century in France. And France was sort of a fascinating case because the French Revolution is, of course, uh, a famous example that the meat cake, they stormed the Bastille at the highest, bread, bread, bread prices were at their heart highest for that for that year. But it wasn't a novel phenomenon, right? So the 80 years preceding the French Revolution, 20 of them had major food riots. And one uh, researcher I found had essentially co- correlated this to the weather. So it was essentially, you know, as soon as if the if the year was one degree centigrade hotter, you had a certain proportion increased probability you were going to sort of have what ru- ru- used increased probability you're going to see uh, riots. So this isn't a new problem, but I suppose what I found interesting is why did this old problem come back, especially given that, as you mentioned, we live in a world of abundance, right? More food being made every single year than the year before it. Just adding to what Russell already said, really, I think we can expand on this idea of the social contract. And if we think of capitalism or even generally market-based orders um, as a situation where people sell their labor and in return get money and then they take this money to the market and uh, buy stuff that they need for their basic survival, then if the prices of the stuff that are essential to their well-being and reproduction as human beings um, increase in ways that price them out of the market, then this basic contract between going to work and getting money in return and then making your living dependent on on that monetary income basically breaks down. And the food subsidies um, that we just discussed, I think, are a way to kind of slightly buffer this dependence on uh, on purchasing basic necessities on the market by state intervention. So it's not abolishing this dependence, but it's slightly buffering it um, or creating a degree of stability if there's some sort of um, of uh, price regulation or stabilizing measures in place. Conversely, if these prices become very volatile and um, fluctuate violently, then this very contract kind of breaks down, um, which then results in uh, repeatedly pretty intense um, political and social reactions. And and in settings where the wage earners are basically in a situation where they are more or less at the 
edge of subsistence, hopefully a little bit above, but maybe also just a little bit below if you take out the subsidies, then this becomes very quickly a very existential kind of threat. Um, and in fact, a, a threat that is then directly linked to the price of food, where the basic need to eat has been become has become market dependent. Yeah, that, that's a critical point. Rupert, you write, quote, we had misunderstood the Arab Spring as a morality tale of good against evil, of freedom against dictatorship, of dignity against corruption. This tale obscured the economic foundations that these regimes were built upon, the democracy of bread, and the international market forces that could reduce them to rubble. Why do you two think that the tale was told this way? Why was the Arab Spring framed in the news and political dis discourse almost exclusively at this level so abstracted? from its material foundation. And what does that tell us about how we should think about politics more generally? Because there seems to be like an 18th Brumaire sort of lesson here. I honestly think it was narcissism. I think the West wanted to see itself <laughs> reflected in other parts of the world. Um, and so, you know, we like to see the kind of arc of history or the arc of pro progress to the extent that the West tells a story about ourselves as sort of about the Enlightenment and freedom and the rule of law um, and all those good things. And then we love to see those values or that progress reflected elsewhere. And so we're eager to sort of recognize ourselves or at least how we think of ourselves elsewhere and it's sort of flattering and to be perfectly honest you know i fell for this as well i made a, uh, a film on on freedom my first documentary and it was an interrogation of this idea of freedom of sort of what does freedom mean uh what do people mean when they struggle for freedom and so i went to hong kong for the umbrella revolution this was 2014 you know i've gone to india to look at some social movements there and of course you know what happened after the arab spring so i went to tunisia and very very quickly you get this you get this sense that this freedom narrative just is something that's been quite imposed there's another interesting aspect of this is that many of the leaders for example in tunisia like monsef marzouki himself was exiled in france so he kind of came in after the revolution and he also imported some of these ideas, especially quite French ideas of kind of, you know, liberté and fraternité and so forth. But he lost that election in 2014 and I interviewed him on the night that he lost and he basically says, we misunderstood the revolution. We thought it was about all of these things. And by we, he means exiles living in France. Uh, we didn't really get that actually it was about providing basic economic necessities and security to people. And that is essentially who beat him that evening was Beje Kaida Sebsi, who ran on this kind of economic nationalist platform. And so for me, what I'm what I try to do with this um, what I tried to do in the book was kind of recenter this economic question and go, okay, where did these economic conditions come from? And unlike the United States, which very much economically, although not entirely, is the master of its own destiny for many reasons, especially when you're in places like like Tunisia or Egypt, even India, that's just not the case. These these regimes and these people's e e economic security is, if you like, mis mismatched with their sort of domestic politics because the West and the US in particular has such an outsized impact on, on, on the global economy and the fates of billions. In some sense, at these moments when the prices of essential goods are shooting up in ways that make it problematic for people who depend on wages to survive on the market are moments in which 
what Marx would have called the double freedom, uh, in particularly sharp contradiction, because the freedom to choose and pursue your own desires and so on, of course, continues in some sense. This liberal freedom continues to um, uh, to, to to prevail to some degree, but the the freedom of of the means of um, of production and thus the dependence in your very livelihood on um, on selling your labor power um, becomes uh, even more problematic in that kind of situation when when the prices for these essential goods are um, skyrocketing in ways that they become to that they end up being completely out of balance with wages. Let's get into the history of how we got to this point, starting with the key moment in your book, Rupert, that unleashes all these ruinous market forces. Bill Clinton signing the Commodity Futures Modernization Act of 2000, or CFMA, into law. Concretely, what did the CFMA do to deregulate financial derivatives and commodities markets? And what what was the motive behind its passage? This is an interesting piece of the history because I think the main motivation actually had little to do with commodities. The thing they were really focused on was the growth of um, what they call OTC derivatives or over-the-counter derivatives. And these are kind of very sort of like bespoke contracts running into hundreds of pages between different financial entities. And they had begun to grow and grow very rapidly in the 1990s. If memory serves me correct, there were two big kind of uh, detonations, right? One was Orange County that I think lost two, $2 billion unexpectedly. And I think it was Procter & Gamble that lost hundreds of millions completely unexpectedly as well. And the then chairwoman of the CFTC, Brooksley Bourne, uh, announced that she was going to release a white paper, essentially asking for comment. And this could be comment from civil society groups. It could be from Wall Street, whoever wants to provide input on the growth of these new derivatives and what they mean. And the Clinton administration blew a gasket, right? So this famous uh, phone call that was reported in the Washington Post where Larry Summers calls up Brooksley Board and says, I've got 13 bad bankers in my office. And they say, if you go ahead with this, you're going to release unleash the worst financial crisis since World War II. Now, Brooksley Bourne ignores Larry Summers. She releases the report. There's no financial crisis. But then Greenspan, in sort of alliance with Summers and the Treasury Department and the Clinton administration, launches a kind of like ambush on Brooksley Bourne and this kind of infamous hearing that took place where they all kind of gang up on her. But it's a fascinating moment because what you see from Greenspan is him articulate a new ideology. And he calls it this. He says there's a new there's a brave new world out there of these derivatives. And the idea was, was that derivatives could be thought of like insurance. Right. And so you can. So essentially, because they're insurance, they're going to make the world a safer place. And because you can insure against risk. And not only that, you can disperse the risk globally. Right. And so he then goes on to make the argument that. If we allow these derivatives to grow, we don't need Glass-Steagall anymore, which was kind of the big wall between investment banking and commercial banking, because now all this risk will be dissipated through the global financial system. He wins this argument, Brooksley Spawn resigns, a report that he co-authors with Larry Summers and two other Treasury officials ends up essentially becoming the Commodity Futures Modernization Act. And in that act, oil and uh, energy sort of get tacked on to sort of be deregulated. The OTC contracts are said they can never be regulated. So it was taking them out of a legal gray area. 
And then these other commodities that have ha- ha been regulated since Roosevelt's era became de- deregulated. And then as often happens in the United States, there was a kind of wrangling a cu- couple of years later. And by around 2004, all commodities are essentially deregulated for practical purposes. And what that means is you can have an unlimited amount of speculative bets. You can, of course, have bets on bets. You can have derivatives that package bets in sort of index funds, ETFs, all the fun things. And that was sort of the world that we live with now and also the world that detonated in 2008. And I think that that story has been told very well, whether it's by watching the uh, Big Short or reading books like Crashed, you know, that story of the of the housing bubble, credit default swaps, that detonation we're quite f- familiar with. What I was trying to do in my book was articulate that the detonations didn't stop there. There were continuous detonations in food, oil in particular. We're seeing them happen again this year. And these have global, global impacts, these tsunamis of chaos that spread across the world. And in fact, all I'm sort of really tra- tra- trying to do is just say, hey, look at these other things, because it was, you know, it was worse than the financial crisis for, for many of these people. Rupert, you write, quote, as the housing market collapsed in 2007, capital fled real estate and found refuge in other apparently unrelated financial a- assets. And then again in 2010, capital flooded into commodities to hedge against what speculators worried would be inflation caused by the Fed's quantitative easing program. It turned out, though, that there was no generalized inflations, as orthodox economists might have predicted, but there was a massive rise in commodity prices, including food. How did that real estate bubble move from one market to another, and what did it mean for a bubble in the giant, just gigantic housing market to move to the really big but relatively much smaller commodities market? Sure. So capital jumps from market to market, right? We see this all the time. And it, it particularly happens because, you know, relatively speaking, there aren't that many mo- money managers. Um, they're not necessarily all friends, but they, you know, they consume similar news sources. They go to similar conferences. They share similar models to uh, arrange their portfolios. And what you essentially see is a bunch of these sort of finance narratives grow, which Schiller would kind of call them, right? So one of the things that I learned from interviewing Robert Schiller, the great Nobel Prize winning economist on economic bubbles, is that it's not just a story of, oh, you know, oil's going to run out, so we go need to go and buy oil. Also, trading strategies themselves are narratives. So in the 1990s, the general story of you were a fund manager, say you were running a pension fund or a university endowment was you essentially want to put all of that capital in stocks and bonds. And, you know, you made a lot of money doing that until the stock market crashed at the end of the 1990s. It turns out eToys wasn't worth what people had hoped <laughs> or whatever <laughs> Quite, the web- exactly. various websites were. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So you have new narrative. So new narrative is, OK, we don't want to be in eToys and pets.com and this kind of crazy new technology. We want to go old school. We want to go housing. We want to go bricks and mortar. And so you do see a huge amount of capital moving from... Uh, what would have got into the stock market and the bond market by these big institutional investors into housing. What do we see? A housing bubble. Of course, it's more complicated than this with the way in which it was financialized. 
but I'll just skip ahead to when it all collapses, right, in 2007. And you have another movement. And so one of the sort of narratives you will hear about commodities is everyone always needs to eat, right? We might not always need Pets.com or Netscape or Napster, but people will always need fuel to heat their home and food to eat. And so, you know, commodities aren't going to go to zero. So it seems like, again, another safe bet, just as housing had seen. And so you get a flow of capital flowing from housing to commodities. And as you note, these markets are totally different sizes, right? Housing is absolutely uh, gigantic. And the commodity markets, relatively speaking, are actually pretty small. So you don't need huge inflows of capital from, from finance to see big moves in prices. And so what you see in 2007 and 2008, right as housing prices are going down, you begin to see commodity prices not just rise, but move into this kind of like crazy super spike in 2008. And I interviewed, you know, one hedge fund manager who said, well, the problem then was with the financial crisis, everyone needed their money back. Everyone meaning speculators, right? You've got your mortgage on your new, your new England mansion, you've got your kids' school fees. And so there was this huge sell-off across all the markets. And so right at the, around September 2008, all markets collapse. Commodities, bonds, equities, it all goes down because speculators need that capital, they want cash, and they're pulling it out of the markets. Now, what this had essentially meant was that this sort of Milton Friedman or Hayekian model of markets being decentralized, grounded in the real world, within whether it's in investors or entrepreneurs making local decisions based on their local knowledge, just doesn't apply, right? It just has no relationship to the story at all, because the people who are really move, 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 moving the prices are not only disconnected from the real world, their concerns are quite different. They're playing a different kind of financial game around portfolio diversification. What then happens is the Federal Reserve's response to the financial crisis to embark on this quantitative easing program. And there was a lot of anxiety on Wall Street about this, that it would be that it would be inflationary. And again, in commodities has always been an inflation hedge, right? You always see those adverts on like Fox News, like buy gold, buy gold, buy gold. <laughs> That's kind of the idea here, right? That like, if the if like the dollar, your paper money is going to become worthless, you need to put it in something kind of quote unquote real. And back then it was various different ETFs. It could be on gold, but it could also be, you know, it could also be on food. It could also be on oil, other commodities. Now people like to diversify with sort of Bitcoin as well. But there was another story that year, which which was in 2010 in the summer, there were wildfires around Russia and there was a lot of sort of news hype at the time of there being a, a global wheat, wheat shortage. Um, and this was another kind of narrative that fed into this quantitative easing narrative that helped to sort of push up wheat, wheat prices. And in fact, they almost doubled in 2010. Needless to say, the fears were not true. Inflation didn't skyrocket as kind of the Randian libertarians on Wall Street feared it would. And likewise, the Americans had a bumper crop crop that year and, you know, wheat supplies were fine. And that, that year, like the years before it, produced more food than any other in history. And so, again, we have these sort of market moves that are sort of in some ways amplifying chaos in the real world. But in those instances, also sort of man manufacturing it from, from nothing. Yeah, maybe... Just a quick thought on this whole theme of how these uh, very violent fluctuations in these markets that are driven by these dynamics that Ripper just described relate to different parts of the world. I think it's important to um, remember that, of course, 
certain countries are much more import dependent on some of these for some of these very basic goods such as wheat i mean then you cited these numbers on uh, wheat imports um from ukraine and, and russia for parts of the african continent right but we have basically a structure where certain countries have moved into exporting um crops and minerals and so on and importing a lot of food stuff which makes which tend to be very poor countries, I mean, with the exception of the oil exporting countries, um, or at least some oil exporting countries, but which makes these price spikes in, in, in food commodities um, also a problem that is very much geographic and that creates much, much larger vulnerabilities in, in the global south than in the global north, which is part of why the story of the financial crisis that we know, as Rupert has been as Rupert has just been reminding us, is the one that kind of dominates on in 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 the news in in the U.S. and in Europe, and the one that we think about. But I think one of the great values of Price Wars is really that it reminds us that there's this big, big, big other story that was happening that might have been less prevalent as an economic story on the minds of um, European and 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 U.S. Um, observers, but that really, really has been a, a crisis of of um, possibly even greater proportions than the one that we have been focused on. Yeah, it's really fascinating because and revealing that the commodities market poses so much less systemic risk to the global economic order than the housing market, but but poses a far more lethal risk to people's lives. I think that's absolutely correct. But I also think the cascading effects go far beyond that. We should care about poverty and hunger that global, right, the rising global food prices cause for their own reasons, right? We don't want to have a system that exacerbates or causes unnecessary suffering pit period. But unfortunately, what ends up, wound up happening in, in 2011 was these riots and revolutions, of course, snow snowballed into civil wars. These civil wars produced, unfortunately, millions of refugees. And by 2015, 2016, those end up, many of them end up in Europe. And the images of those, of those refugees also end up in the United States. And that also fuels the sort of right-wing populist hysteria that kind of starts in Europe in 2015, in sort of Poland, Austria, Italy, even France, with Le Pen doing better than expected. And in some sense, sort of ends with sort of Brexit in the summer of 2016, and Donald Trump's election. And so what I was also trying to show in this book was that we may think that these price shocks are impacting other people, but the chaos that they create ends up producing these ripple effects that does come back to the West. No one can really escape this. Rupert, you mentioned earlier how oil exporting governments in the Middle East were better able to protect themselves from the Arab Spring by using oil revenue to fund lavish social aid packages. But these wild fluctuations can be totally disastrous for oil producing countries, too. I mean, the, the oil boom, as you write a lot at great length about in your book, helped fund the rise of ISIS. Then in 2014, Speculators ultimately drive the price of oil to the point of a crash, which, amongst other things, wrecked the Venezuelan economy. There is, of course, a lot to critique about Maduro's governance, but but you write that the economic crisis there had really nothing to do with his purportedly socialist policies. It was really a thoroughly capitalist sort of crisis that, with the 2017 sanctions imposed under Trump, turned a bad situation into just catastrophe. Absolutely. I just clarify that my my take on sort of the Maduro Chavez administration 
is that they're not really socialist, right? Essentially, what I think what the studies that have looked into the social social programs of the regime essentially show that the oil money was used in a kind of clientelistic way, often actually lavished on swing voters in middle class na- 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 neighborhoods, and this is to be expected, right? Uh, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Venezuela, these are all oil regimes, and they all kind of function through clientelism. Each one of these leaders has quite showy ideological rhetoric, right? Putin's on this kind of crazed uh, nationalist uh, thing. You know, Saudi Arabia obviously presents itself and acts like a theocracy. Chavez used to kind of, from 2005 onwards, kind of look like a kind of pastiche of Che Guevara. But I sort of think when you strip that away and you sort of look at the political science of how these regimes operate, they're all essentially clientelistic. A part of that is the destruction of anything in the economy that is not seizable by the regime and the elites. And that usually means anything that doesn't relate to oil exports. And so what this means is that with a regime like Venezuela, when the price of oil is high, things are great, right? Because you could export all this oil, you could import everything else. Not only that, your imports are so cheap, it kind of bankrupts any sort of local agriculture or local manufacturing industries that you might have because you can't compete. And this is great for the regime because people like cheap imports, they like cheap goods, it's a way of uh, keeping up your popularity. But of course, once the oil price collapses, you know, you sort of lose twice, right? You lose the income from oil, but you don't have anything to fall back on. You don't have any of these, you don't have farms left, you don't have manufacturing, you don't have capacity to make fertilizer. And so what you end up getting is this sort of skyrocketing inflation. So 2014, inflation in Venezuela is running a thousand percent. What's interesting about that is that that's actually not unusual for Venezuela. So in previous eras, in the early 1990s, for example, there was a similar um, inflationary spiral that ran a thousand percent. This also happened in the 1970s. These were not governments that called themselves socialists or acted in a socialist way. This is just if you like the mechanics of the Venezuelan state and its sort of inability to kind of manage the boom bust of international commodity prices. On the 2017 point, you're right, that I think absolutely is the moment when you go from inflation being a thousand percent to a million percent. And I interviewed, you know, Jeffrey Sachs, somebody who nobody, the listeners would associate to be a kind of defender of Maduro or the regime um, or socialism as the kind of, you know, architect of, of, of neoliberalism in the 1990s. But even he, even he really emphasized like these are sort of commodity price dynamics and the political economy of it. And the way in which the Trump administration starved the Maduro administration of dollars essentially uh, was catastrophic to their domestic oil, oil production. And that was just sort of like kicking them, kicking them while they were down. Maybe zooming out a little bit, if we take a bit of a long run view on this. Um, in fact, I have been working on um, a paper where we have assembled a new data set for world commodity level exports, and here commodity not in the sense of, as has been defined previously, but in the sense of um, broken down to specific goods. Um, For the first globalization, which we commonly consider as um, also the period of 
of imperialism proper, if you want so. And we have been testing the persistence of export patterns across the first and the second globalization. And we find that there's an incredible amount of persistence where basically countries that were highly diversified in the kind of things that they were exporting in the globalization at the turn of the 20th century are still highly diversified now. And countries that were highly specialized into a handful of commodities, and now commodities in the sense as we have um, discussed um, the meaning previously, um, are still highly specialized or lack diversification today as a global tendency. Of course, there are exceptions. But this means that countries that come out on the losing end of this hierarchy are just macroeconomically speaking, incredibly more vulnerable to these enormous commodity price fluctuations so that we can see how this is playing out based on these specific country examples. And this is, of course, incredibly important, but it's then really not just the story of these specific countries, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a more general story of the, the very fundamental challenges um, in terms of even creating some, some sort of um, basic economic stability in the light of such violent commodity price fluctuations. So in that sense, I think it really is a global north, global south kind of story where the vulnerabilities present themselves in very, very different ways. We have been using the term chaos. Um, and of course, Rupert is using the term chaos and is using it um, carefully in, in the book. I think it, it, it merits reminding ourselves that chaos um, is defined as a situation of fundamental unpredictability. Um, where basically we would think of a system entering a stage where we cannot predict where it will move next. Um, now, if there is a situation of chaos, I think this is precisely the kind of situation where market signals um, tend to become pretty ungrounded, even more ungrounded than they might be in, in less chaotic times, where, of course, the beauty contest and the narratives and, and all that we have been talking about plays a big role. But once you enter into a phase of actual chaos, then then this unpredictability becomes even more severe and the um, the reliance on markets um, even more challenging. Rupert, you cite the scholar Cullen Hendricks's research showing that rising oil prices increase oil exporting countries' likelihood to engage in military adventurism. And you re-examine recent Russian history through that lens. The 1979 Afghanistan invasion was launched at the peak of an oil boom, the same year you note that Iraq invaded Iran. Collapsing oil prices in the 80s then forced Gorbachev to turn to Western lenders, precipitating the Soviet Union's collapse. The 2008 Russia-Georgia war, likewise, launched at a high point for oil prices. And the same was true for the 2014 Russian invasion, seizing Crimea and backing separatists in the Donbass, which also, it's worth saying, took place against the backdrop of Ukraine looking to exploit a major, major gas reserves in eastern Ukraine and in the Black Sea around Crimea. Bringing us up to the present day, Tim Sahay wrote in a review of your book for The Prospect, quote, The Kremlin had been planning the invasion, if not their own military readiness, for months, and the timing coincides with a run-up in energy prices and tight commodity markets that gave Putin major strategic leverage. 
Windfalls from fossil fuels not only padded Putin's war chest and foreign exchange reserves to act as what he assumed would be a partial buffer against sanctions, they also made Europe acutely dependent on its eastern neighbor in the winter leading up to the attack. How can this energy lens help us reevaluate that history and also, also the present moment? Because it's all so often framed in terms of Putin's mindset, which of course matters, and also these more abstract, civilizationally driven forms of geopolitics. And then, more specifically, was the commodities boom leading up to the recent Russian invasion once again the result of speculators attempting to hedge against inflation, a a repeat of sorts of what we saw in 2010? So the way in which I think about geopolitics um, throughout the book is this sort of metaphor of the monster in the maze, right? So uh, doom scrolling on Twitter, you know, today as much as it was when I started this project, you know, six, seven years ago, really. It looks like a horror movie, right? It's this horror genre of monsters that these kind of Godzilla-like figures causing trails of destruction everywhere they go. Um, you know, back when I started, ISIS was a, a much bigger figure in that now than than they are now. But, you know, Putin still very much presented as this kind of, you know, agent of sort of destruction in the way that we kind of consume the media, right? That's the genre. But as a keen watcher of horror movies myself, the key to a great monster movie is actually the maze, right? So take the famous film Alien, you've got Alien chasing Ripley around the spaceship. If it was an open plane, it would the movie would last two minutes, right? The Alien would just get Ripley and that'd be the end of it. This is also true in films like Dawn of the Dead, where you've got zombies going around a shopping mall or films like The Shining where you've got you know Jack Nicholson running around a literal labyrinth at the end of the film in a kind of echo to the Greek myth of the the, the Minotaur and the maze and what I think this framework allows us to think about is it lets us bracket motivation we don't also need to know whether Jaws is particularly hungry in the film Jaws or why the xenomorph and alien is doing what it's doing, right? You just need to know that you've got to put that monster behind all that alien, behind the airlock, right? That's what Ripley's doing, right, basically for the last half of the movie, running around, trying to kind of close doors to keep this monster for killing her. She's not thinking that deeply about why it is the monster doesn't like her, does the monster want the cat, does the monster want something else? We can kind of just assume, I think, that these monsters have these ids. And if you're going to become the premier of a petrostate, you're probably going to be a pretty nefarious person, right? If you look at these characters like Mohammed bin Salman or Putin, kind of if you get to that kind of the top of the pyramid or the vertical, as it's called in Russia, you probably do have a kind of expansionist, nefarious, geopolitical sort of strategy. Now... Whether or not you can act on that, on that motivation depends upon the resources at your disposal and also the resources at your opponent's disposal as well. And that's what I really liked about uh, Colin Hendricks' research is that he'd really shown by looking at sort of 50 years of conflicts involving pet petrostates and correlating that to oil prices. You do see as the oil price rises, you know, their treasuries get filled with money. That money can be spent on buying off supporters. It can also be spent on uh, military uh, hard hardware, foreign exchange reserves. It can also be important in weakening your adversary as well, right, as we're seeing right now. When energy and commodity prices are high, the rest of the world really needs your commodity. So it's very difficult for them to impose sanctions on you 
and cut you off. And the way in which I thought about this was it's almost like these high prices unlock the monsters from the cages, right? They're there, they want to do bad things. You know, Putin's clearly got some ideas, whether it's about NATO or the EU or revolving the Russian Empire or denazification, whatever the reason is on a given day that he's, he's giving. He's probably wanted to do what he's doing now seven years ago in 2014. But shortly after his sort of initial excursions into Donbass and Crimea, the price of oil collapses, right? And it stays pretty low right until 2021. So that means two things. One is he isn't in a strong position in in terms of his uh, own foreign exchange reserves and his own military necessarily. But it also means that, you know, oil is sort of abundant, right? If we can embargo Russia, oil is $20 a barrel or $30 a barrel. If it goes up five or 10, it's like, fine, it's still historically pretty low. To go on to the second part of your question, what you begin to see in 2021 is commodity prices rising, oil in particular. Now, is this driven by speculation? Is this driven by fundamentals? You know, we can definitely have a debate around this. On the gas story, essentially what had happened was there was a essentially political turmoil inside inside China around the coal, the coal industry. There was she was launching an anti-corruption crackdown. Long story short, this led to a shortage of coal in in China. In in the summer, they begin the late summer. They begin to import natural gas as a substitute. The price of gas rises. Europe decides uh, not to replenish their stockpile and wait for gas prices to go down. And so you see European stocks going down when stocks when gas prices are high. This is absolutely ideal conditions now in terms of this maze for Putin to strike. And at the same time, you have these oil prices going up. Now, again, let's just assume the markets are rational, just for argument's sake. There was some reporting in the FT at the time this actually wasn't the case, but let's just assume it is. Putin is putting battalions on the border. Now, what happens? The rational market response is to price in this risk, right? So speculators are saying, well, okay, oil supplies, oil distribution isn't impacted, but it could be impacted in the future. And this is called the risk premium. So what happens? Oil prices start to rise in response to Putin's aggressiveness. And what does this do? This rewards Putin, right? This puts more money in the Kremlin coffers. This makes him more confident and... Uh, Colin Hendricks has this uh, great phrase to encapsulate this, which he calls chestiness. So essentially, you have this feedback loop between Putin and the rational markets, whereby Putin's aggressiveness gets priced into the markets, that price then increases the, the, the Kremlin's coffers, and then this becomes this feedback loop. Now, what was probably happening at the same time is that these stories are amplified, right? So the fears of an invasion end up driving up the price more than it would have been would have been otherwise. And this is how we get to where we are today. As you mentioned, Rupert, pr- these price wars have also pushed people to migrate, which then creates a conveniently racialized and embodied scapegoat for all of this market chaos that affects not only the global South, but obviously over recent decades, very much the global North as well. We've seen this from the refugee crisis following the food shock provoked Arab Spring and then rise of ISIS to a mass Central American exodus caused in part by plummeting coffee prices. Why did migration from Guatemala explode in 2019? You write that climate change did play a key role, but that it was plummeting coffee prices that were the trigger. 
I went to Guatemala to kind of try and figure out this this piece of the puzzle in 2019. And I should just sort of say, I've been leaving it out, but throughout all of these examples, you know, I went on kind of gonzo adventures to each of these places because I was uh, fascinated to see, not just thinking about chaos in terms of prices, but also what does chaos mean to somebody's life, right? What does it mean to live in an edge of chaos? And also, as soon as you come to any of these places, whatever your preconceptions were, immediately you get punctured within about five minutes of stepping off the airplane. Guatemala was fascinating because what I began to see there was how so many people live right on the edge of chaos, right? So these price movements, sure, they could be big. Sometimes we talk about the doubling of food prices feels sort of very dramatic. And of course, it is very dramatic, right? Because a lot of states are unable to sort of subsidize that. But also very small changes in prices can also have big impacts if people are living right on the edge. And that's what I... Uh, found when I went to Guatemala. So you have sort of three things kind of came together in 2018, 2019. One was you've got a sort of farming economy that is sort of debt driven, right? So you've got lots of small farmers, they own their home and a patch of land. And in order to sort of buy the fertilizers and other things they need to kind of, you know, do the harvest, they go to local money lenders and they borrow against their land. They essentially mortgage it. But the interest rate is extortionate. It's 10% a month. And the second factor here is climate change. So climate change has been sort of identified in Guatemala for decades. It's regularly been on one of the most kind of climate asterisk uh, parts of the world. And how that affects coffee is it sort of promotes the growth of a, of a fungus called roya or, or rust. And they need to buy expensive fertilizers to to treat this. Again, this is a long-term trend though. So year on year, you're seeing them spend a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more on these fertilizers. So you're seeing their costs are going up, they're mortgaged up to the hilt to pay for these fertilizers and other things they need. And then you have a collapse in the global price of coffee. Now, the narrative is you've got overproduction in Brazil and overproduction in Vietnam. There's obviously truth to that. There's nobody's questioning that. But even reporting in kind of market friendly institutions such as the Financial Times was kind of agog at the size of the hedge fund short positions during this period, which imagine you're kind of on a ship and everybody runs to kind of one side of the ship and the ship kind of tilts over. That's a, a way in which you can think about how hedge funds can pile on to one side of a trend, right? And the side in this case, a short, a short is predicting that prices will go down. Yes, that's right. That's right. And so this ends up pushing the prices down. They were going down, they probably would have gone down anyway. I don't think anyone questions that. But they really went down below what people at the ground were telling me was a kind of critical threshold, which was uh, essentially $100 per bag of coffee, whatever the the unit they, they were using to, 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 to measure a, a standard bag. And at that point, you go bankrupt because you cannot pay the extortionate interest on these loans. And so you lose everything. You lose your farm, you lose your land, you lose your entire li- li- livelihood. And so what this ends up doing is across this entire region of South America and Guatemala in particular, is it essentially sends an exodus of people to through, through Mexico to the United States. And this, of course, isn't unusual in South America. There's been lots of waves of migration. Um, There were famously, if you go to Guatemala and you will see, you know, the American flag painted on houses that were 
pay, paid for from uh, remittances sent to the United States. This is like a fairly normal, sorry, normal isn't the right word, but it's it, it's a culturally understood response to a crisis. And of course, rightly, as you say, when they come to America, these sort of proximate causes are not even kind of debated, right? All of the debate is around Trump's response. Is it humane? Is it not humane? Did the laws originate with Obama? Is it Trump's fault? Is it a theater of cruelty? That's kind of where the discourse is. And during this, we sort of just accept that the chaos has come from this other part of the world that's got nothing to do with the United States. They're presented in sort of very racialized, racist overtones of these kind of invaded caravans, like helicopter shots on CNN, watching them kind of march through Mexico. And of course, the chaos the chaos really came from the United States, right? It came from these globalized commodity markets and hedge funds that were looking to make not even that much money, right? These are actually quite small plays. These these are small small markets, but not only did it disrupt at least half half a million people in uh, Central America, but it also caused a political crisis inside the United States as well. Yeah, it's amazing how the actual root causes of migration being obscured allows for the political, this incredibly distorted political debate that polarizes between Trumpian cruelty on the one hand and a liberal benevolence towards migrants on the other. That in practice, as we've seen with Biden and with prior Democratic administrations, is a mostly rhetorical form of benevolence. Yeah, I just wanted to say that I think this Guatemala case really points to a much larger problem. I mean, not to say that this is a small problem, but a much more widespread problem in the making, um, where the combination of um, presumably an increasing frequency of extreme weather events that will um, affect certain crops um, with very volatile global commodity markets could create similar kinds of dynamics in all sorts of places. And um, the, the the great dependency of whole countries or regions on specific monoculture crops um, can can exacerbate um, th- this kind of enormous um, problem um, in, in quite scary ways, I think. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Dissidents Among Dissidents, Ideology, Politics, and the Left in Post-Soviet Russia by Ilya Budraitskis. Budraitskis one of Russia's most prominent leftist political commentators, explores the strange fusion of free market ideology and postmodern nationalism that now prevails in Russia, and describes the post-Soviet evolution of its left. Budraitskis makes an invaluable contribution by reconstructing the forgotten history of the USSR's dissident left, mapping an entire alternative tradition of heterodox Marxist and socialist thought, from Khrushchev's thaw to Gorbachev's perestroika doubly outsiders within an intelligentsia dominated by liberal humanists. These dissidents offer a potential way out of the impasse between condemnations of the entire Soviet era and blanket nostalgia for Communist Party rule, suggesting new paths for the left to explore. 
Dissidents Among Dissidents, Ideology, Politics, and the Left in Post-Soviet Russia by Ilya Butraitskis. Out now from Verso Books. Okay, let's talk about climate change's economic impact. Initially, Rupert, you're right, that was what was more emphasized was this worry that climate change would produce a, a Malthusian problem of absolute scarcity, too, too few resources for too, too many people. But in fact, you write that the bigger short or medium term problem is actually how algorithm-based trading will price in the very prospect, the mere prospect of climate disruption, and in doing so, lead to economic catastrophe. What what do we miss when we look at climate change economics through a purely Malthusian lens? Well, the first thing is that all of Malthus's, Malthus's predictions have been wrong, right? So it's kind of a strange <laughs> frame to kind of adopt to begin with. Um, in some ways, it, it's it's a simple story to tell, right? We've kind of seen Mad Max, or at least seen the trailer. We get the idea of there just not being enough stuff and people being really mad about it and, like, getting on motorcycles and going to go and get it. Um, and, and so that that story, I think, I think really resonates. And I found a fascinating piece of sort of history of this, which was that one of the architects of this was uh, a futurist. He's still around, still doing his futurism stuff called Robert Schwartz. Um, Bob Schwartz, I think. Peter Schwartz, sorry. And he was hired by the Pentagon in around 2002 to kind of look into this question of kind of climate change risks and, you know, defence and what it means for America. And he painted a very kind of Malthusian sort of scenario of, you know, Europe not getting enough food and then like huge migration to Africa and the collapse of, you know, the European Union and life as we know it. And it was kind of supposed to be an exaggerated story right he they weren't trying to make like a one-to-one prediction of what would happen they were just trying to get kind of policymakers thinking about this and they were successful so a few years later the center for naval analysis produced this landmark report what they call climate change a threat multiplier so the idea is it's not necessarily that we're going to be like fighting over oil fields in siberia or in Donbass, although we may already be doing that anyway. The idea was is that, you know, water stress, too little food, too much rain, whatever this, the climate stressor may be, is going to make cl- cl- conflicts worse. Now, what I found interesting about Schwartz's bi- biographies, as a futurist, he'd also consulted for ho- Hollywood. He'd consulted with Steven Spielberg for Minority Report, but he also consulted and kind of came up with the plot for that 1980 three movie with Matthew Broderick called War Games. And in War Games, there's this computer, this kind of like game theory supercomputer the Pentagon uses to kind of uh, kind of Skynet thing to kind of get all their nuclear silos to respond to then the Soviet Union. And the movie kind of ends with it having to beat a game of tic-tac-toe and it all going wrong. And what I found interesting when I rewatched the film before I interviewed Schwartz was for my research, that was a much better accurate prediction of how climate wars can happen, right? It's not necessarily us living in this Malthusian, bad Max world, although I acknowledge that could definitely happen. I don't have a crystal ball. Perhaps it will happen in 100 years, 200 years. But it's probably not going to happen in the near term because the way in which we organise the world is through markets. It's through prices. And so you would really need to see a complete disintegration of supply chains and the commodity markets in order for us to get to a kind of like pre-market 
pre-modern way of which exchanging goods, which is what that kind of Malthusian model would would predict. And instead, we live in a world whereby commodity prices, we've mentioned already, are by large part driven by traders that aren't even human beings. I mentioned earlier how they could be trading on head, he- headlines um, about wars and so forth, or Anne Hathaway. But that also... That isn't the only source of data they're using, right? So they're also using a lot of satellite data. And essentially, one commodity trader explained it to me in, in a way. He said, like, look, you know, take wheat. There's really three places you sort of make wheat, right? Canada, the US, Russia. There are some smaller producers like Ukraine. If there's going to be a global shortage of wheat, we're going to know about it, right? You don't need a satellite. There's going to be, like there is now, massive sanctions, a war, a huge drought. You're going to need a kind of continental scale event to do so. But what these satellites are able to do is they're able to detect very small changes in harvests across the world. And these small changes get detected, they get fed into algorithms, and they get fed into tra- trading bots, and they essentially get amplified. And as I had discussed with the, with the Guatemala example, you don't necessarily need huge sort of price shocks or day after tomorrow kind of style superstorms to unleash global chaos. It can actually be relatively small changes in prices of what might be considered kind of small and insignificant uh, commodities like coffee, which can end up producing political crises in, in, in the United States. And because more and more people are living in markets, so one of the uh, the big impacts that climate change is, is, is happening currently is it's actually making those kinds of Mad Max scenarios where they do exist, right? So I went to nor- northern Kenya, I, you know, uh, talked to cattle herders and raiders, and that lifestyle is dying because to live off the land is extremely difficult in, in a time of climate change. And so what that's doing is it's driving mass migration to cities. And in cities, you don't live off the land, you live off the markets and those prices are kind of set internationally. And so what I ended up kind of concluding about this was that the immediate climate wars we we could be facing are going to be determined by these markets, whereby market moves amplify local climate shocks in, into global catastrophes. Isabella? Yeah, just, just to add to what Robert has already been saying, I think it's important to remember that Morthus, of course, stated that population increases in a geometric progression. So 2, 4, 16, and so on. So it kind of multiplies and then becomes exponential. While food production increases in an arithmetic progression, so 2, 4, 6, 8, and so on which means that these two curves will eventually be diverging pretty badly. But still, it's a kind of um, a very predictable, universal type of tendency, right? Where we can see from this that eventually um, food prices will be going up and will be going up universally in a pretty predictable kind of fashion and then creating the type of um, crisis of, of, of survival of parts of the population that Morthus is, is predicting. However, what we are faced with is, in contrast, these fairly local but not less dramatic kind of extreme climate and weather events um, that can unleash um, very dramatic dynamics um, long before any of these long-run trends would be playing out, if they even were to play out in the ways in which Morthus um, was envisioning, which is, of course, extremely questionable. So this is to say that the whole model, not only in its specific predictions, 
but also in the basic logic of projecting long-run universal trends as the explanation of what will be happening, I think it's not very applicable to um, the kind of localized extreme shocks with um, very unpredictable um, repercussions um, way beyond um, the localities where the local shock hit. This dictatorship of prices that we've been living under, well, I mean, it's part of capitalism, but in terms of this extreme version that has ruled the day, it dates not just to the CMFA of 2000, but all the way back, of course, to the rise of neoliberalism in the 1970s. And listeners will be familiar with this history. Neoliberals used the economic crisis that decade to attack Keynesianism and the New Deal order, even though the oil shock, of course, that brought about stagflation was not the result of too much government spending in the U.S., or anywhere. It was caused by OPEC's coordinated economic warfare amid the fourth era of Israeli war. And yet, you write, Rupert, quote, the foundation of the social contracts that had shielded ordinary people from the rule of prices had fractured. People were told that the security they enjoyed was no longer sustainable, that it had to be subordinated to a higher power, the need to control inflation. Why couldn't the reigning Keynesian order deal with that supply shock? And then how did the neoliberal response obscure to that crisis, obscure the fact that the inflation was indeed rooted in a supply shock? I think when you look at what Keynesians were saying at the time, their confidence was punctured. By the time of the 1970s, Keynes had been long dead and there had been a new generation of Keynesian economists who had built a variety of tools that were could be faithful, could not be faithful. That's an argument for debate. But the politicians using these tools and the tools have been established were not perceived to be working and the Keynesians didn't have a good answer at the time. I think the neoliberals, led by Friedman in particular, had always believed that um, inflation was a monetary phenomenon. And they really argued very, very hard against the concept that it could be coming from trade unions demanding higher wages or from the or from the oil shock. Now, just like now with inflation, there's a lot of different narratives, right? Is it a supply chain? Is it we're spending too much money? Is it corporate greed out of control? Is it a combination of these things? There's a huge amount of uncertainty. And I feel that the important part of the 1970s was that those political parties, particularly the Democrats in the US and Labour in, in the UK, no longer had confidence. Whatever confidence they had had gone, and that gave the neoliberals an opening to propose another model. A model that, by the way, wasn't particularly popular. It wasn't one that had mass support, but it was presented in this way of there is no alternative. And I, my fear is that we're returning to something like that right now. Yeah, I mean, in some sense, the irony is that Keynes had, of course, suggested a third Bretton Woods institution, which would have been that would have had the mandate of stabilizing commodity prices with internationally managed buffer stocks of key commodities, since he, as a commodity trader himself, um, in at, at some occasions, um, was very much aware of the enormous fluctuations of commodity prices um, compared to the fluctuations in prices in the industrial sector, where commodity prices, even before the rise of um, the kind of hyper-speculative institutional regime 
that has emerged um, in, in the 2000s, um, that even before commodity prices tended to be much more unstable than prices that followed more of a kind of cost plus type of pricing rules. Which means that in some sense, it's ironic that we are thinking of the post-war era as this Keynesian era that is then breaking down with the 1970s in the oil shock, where um, Keynes, in some sense, as the third pillar of the Bretton, Wood, uh, Bretton Woods institutions, had hoped to precisely have an international institutional arrangement that could have helped to buffer um, shocks that come from specific kinds of um, commodities, such as oil. I think one of the insights on the whole question of the rise of neoliberalism that comes from this discussion that we are having and this whole idea of the rule of prices is that surprisingly, even though Hayek is, of course, very clear about this and Friedman in his own ways is also very clear about this, the movement of prices, the free movement of private prices um, is at the core of neoliberal economic thinking. A lot of scholarship and discussion on neoliberalism has focused much less on the um, price freedom and much more on questions of privatization, union rights and so on, which are, of course, all incredibly important aspects of the rise of neoliberalism. But um, I think from the perspective of the discussion that we have been having, um, there is an, an, an additional lens through which one can understand the rise of neoliberalism, which is really the universalization of um, the rule of free private prices. And the emphasis here is really on, on private prices, because, of course, private prices can also be set in rather um, conscious manners in reality. But the idea um, in, in this economic model is that they are moving such as to um, always bring about the best possible coordination of the economy as a whole. In 2008, Alan Greenspan's agenda of real estate asset inflation and unregulated derivatives blew up the global economy. And when that happened, the Fed responded by doing a lot of stuff that was previously deemed impossible under the natural laws of, of economics, buying up tons of government debt and in doing so, sidelining the bond vigilantes who had supposedly operated as some sort of natural force in the market to check purportedly excessive state spending. By contrast, the Eurozone crisis happened because the European Central Bank refused to do what the Fed did. They let the bond vigilantes run wild to force Southern European countries to their knees and accept just brutal austerity. And perhaps even more remarkably, Obama ultimately bought into the same thing, moving to prioritize deficit reduction. In 2010, just a couple years into the crisis, well before the recovery could reach many working class Americans, how were the lessons of 2008 so quickly forgotten in the US? And why weren't they ever learned at all in, in Europe? at least till later, which we can put a pin in. How did it happen that these economic laws were proven to be man-made rather than natural, but then policymakers and politicians just went back to believing that they were natural laws after all so quickly? 
Yeah, I mean, I think there is a question if they have been forgotten, if we look at how things played out in, in 2020, where, of course, we have seen like some of the largest, I mean, the largest rescue package in, in the history of this country and so on. So in some sense, I think that the idea of uh, debunking the deficit myth with a lot of work on the part of heterodox economists um, and uh, uh, prominently, of course, Stephanie Kelton, um, I think has been uh, quite surprisingly in many ways successful in in overcoming um, the idea that deficit spending will always be shooting yourself in the foot as a government. Um, things look, of course, quite differently in Europe, in particular in my country, Germany. <laughs> there, there, there seems to be a, a much stronger belief in, in, in the wisdoms of austerity. But I think the interesting thing is that there has been a, a shift in the understanding of macroeconomic policymaking since the financial crisis. But what we find ourselves in now is a situation where focusing on the macro level, whether it's monetary or fiscal policy, is no longer sufficient in trying to make sense of these extreme sectoral dynamics that have been um, uh, happening uh, first following the pandemic and then now the pandemic um, plus the war in Ukraine um, that just take on a, a, a kind of dynamic that cannot be um, regulated or contained by um, by by pure macroeconomic responses, I believe, because um, they are so sectoral. I think whenever there's crisis, there's opportunity. And so I think what we're seeing is, you know, different politicians from different parties across across, let's just stick to the West, you know, Europe and the US, kind of try and define this differently. So there are some like in the US and the Biden administration who are pushing what Isabella just mentioned, a more kind of sectoral understanding of this. But I think in in, in, in the UK, for example, the conservative government there is going for a much more kind of retro, almost kind of early 1980s approach, which is, you know, we're going to essentially make people poorer, right? We're going to lean into the cost of living crisis by making it harder for people to live in order to crush inflation, right? In the famous Volcker shock of the early 1980s, there was this famous kind of quote from a Reagan administrator, Reagan official saying, you know, we're going to pay with blood, other people's blood. And I think that's very much what's going to be happening in the UK now. The hammer is going to come down and it's going to essentially try and solve this crisis, which is a sectoral crisis. It's a supply chain crisis. It's one being imported from the international markets, but they're going to do it through an old school way because they are looking for an excuse to return to austerity. Uh, just to be sure, I'm not suggesting that austerity is gone and that we are like kind of in this wonderful post-austerity kind of world. Um, and we do see, of course, the return to uh, hiking interest rates. We do see politically a lot of pressure towards um, not having the Build Back Better plan, which would have been another massive fiscal expansion and so on. So I'm not not suggesting that that we have moved into post-austerity kind of territory. I just think that within the economic policy discourse, by now, it, there are very strong voices that are critical of austerity and that are critical of 
of uh, monetary tightening in the current context, which is not to say that this means it will not happen. In fact, um, in the US, uh, it has already started to happen. Um, and uh, clearly, the Fed is on track to, on track to um, further rise interest rates. And it's likely that other countries um, will be following that trajectory. And then, of course, um, monetary tightening logically is connected to fiscal tightening. Nevertheless, I do think there has been a certain shift in the kind of commonsensical understanding where before the um, the, the 2008 um, crisis, there was, um, uh, I mean, the austerity was just so commonsensical that, um, that um, suggesting what uh, happened in response to the 2008 crisis and then in 2020, in let's say 2006, would have been um, something extremely heretical to argue for, whereas by now this has become much more mainstream, which is not to say that um, that uh, that the word will be spending its way out of this crisis. And just to clarify for listeners, the response to the 2008 financial crisis from the Fed was paradigm shattering. And then the response from both the Fed and the ECB to the pandemic's economic crisis was just of another order of magnitude entirely with what was called QE infinity. Yes, thanks, Dan. <laughs> so... We're, of course, as Isabel, Isabella um, talking at this at a moment when inflation has become a central political issue in the Fed, as you mentioned, it's tightening up its monetary policy, winding down quantitative easing and hiking interest rates. And once again, like in the 1970s, we're dealing with a supply shock, this time in the form of disrupted supply chains. And yet, once again, the blame seems to be getting placed on so-called wage, spi- wage price spiral inflation even with this shift in economic thinking that you described and the increasing salience of heterodox economic ideas. Yet, once again, we see this tightening up of monetary policy threatening to curb worker power and put a downward pressure on wages. Given that we've been hearing about the supply chain disruption for so long, it was not a marginal story, in the news media, and given these huge advances from heterodox economists, how are opinion makers and the powers that be, how are they getting away with blaming and punishing workers for inflation once again? I mean, I think it's important to remember that from the perspective of the United States and Europe, inflation is a problem that we haven't been thinking about in a pretty long time, which, by the way, is, of course, presents itself very differently if we look from the perspective of, let's say, Latin America, right? So again, we kind of have this divide of of uh, chaos and price instabilities and so on as a kind of a common occurrence in the global south. Um, but now it kind of also has become a, 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 a problem that affects um, the, the core countries in new ways. So unlike uh, the question of how to do a fiscal rescue package, where there had been kind of a rehearsed um, in incidents um, in terms of the response to the uh, 2008 crisis, the, the whole question of how to deal with inflation and how to deal with sectoral inflation and how to deal with um, breaking supply chains um, and how to deal with spiking um, essential prices that um, drive up uh, costs um, across a whole range of um, product categories, um, all of these things happening at the same time kind of does put us into a pretty new type of um, scenario. 
Now, nevertheless, people tend to think about uh, crises in terms of previous crises. So the 1970s crisis is kind of the one that is the common reference, even though um, I think at the same time, it's quite clear that the terrain that we find ourselves in is, uh, uh, is, is a whole magnitude um, more um, complicated and is taking on a different kind of dynamic. So this means that I think uh, uh, we in some sense need to, I mean, we as economists in some sense need to acknowledge that we find ourselves in uncharted waters or uncharted territories. And that that uh, in, in, in this kind of situation, what we would really need is um, a, a, an open, honest kind of discussion rather than a relapse into certain orthodoxies or certain settled histories of, of, of periods such as the 1970s. And um, unfortunately, I feel there's way too little of such an open, constructive discussion that starts from the premise of, of the observation that we find ourselves in pretty unprecedented kind of um, constellations um, and that this might require um, new, new kind of thinking um, rather than just a rehashing of, of existing uh, responses, be they um, what we would commonly consider as, as orthodox or as, as, as heterodox. I think that when we face times of disruption or a kind of change from what we're used to, so that would be the last 40 years or maybe more like 25, 30 years of sort of very low inflation when there's a kind of new thing we have to face. Essentially, political entrepreneurs in the media, in politics, from think tanks, from financial institutions are trying to define what the crisis is. And so you get a kind of narrative sort of competition. And these narratives, unfortunately, aren't necessarily driven by the most sober and objective assessment of what's happening. They're narratives which define political possibilities. And there's a large... Uh, section of the conservative movement is very uh, scared of the enormous government spending that happened during the first year or so of the pandemic with the furlough schemes and various different government support measures in Europe and the West. And they are desperate, if you like, to put the lid back on the cookie jar. I listen to a conservative podcast in the UK and you constantly hear this refrain of, well, you know, we gave the public the furlough, so now they're going to want something else. And you've got to stop them wanting something else. You've got to slam the cookie jar shut. And I think that's sort of what we're seeing with these narratives. So you have two different kind of cross currents. You have on the one hand, what Isabella was describing, which is a kind of a genuine empirical search into what's happening. We are in uncharted territories. But the crosswinds of that are essentially political interests pushing the other direction, which already have a narrative they want to say. It's been, this, it's been the same, same narrative they've been pushing for the last 40 years, which is if you give the public too many cookies, not only is it bad for them and going to make them fat, but they're going to keep asking for them. And really the job of government and the media is to kind of limit people's imaginations and make sure they understand there is no alternative. Isabella, you wrote in The Guardian this past December, quote, a critical factor that is driving up prices remains largely overlooked, an explosion in profits. People tend to think, it seems, that Prices are rising because supply chain disruptions are pushing up costs, which companies then pass on to consumers. But this story is a rather different one. How are businesses exploiting supply chain disruptions to make these record profits? So basically, 
we have a story where we, of course, have supply chain disruptions. Supply chain disruptions are not a conspiracy. They are real. <laughs> they are very real. We also have an explosion in um, raw material prices and energy prices and food prices that preceded the Ukraine war. And these are also, I mean, whatever the reasons why they are happening, as we have already discussing, they are complex and and, and so on. Um, but they are real and they are there. And um, companies do face these supply chain issues and these increases in um, uh, basic raw material and energy costs. Now, the question is, what happens if a company faces increasing costs? Um, it, I mean, it, it might simply pass on the increase in costs, which would already mean increasing prices, right? You would basically be compensating for the increase in costs by increasing your prices. So you would assume that you simply like exactly take the increase in costs and add them to the price and then charge this price to whoever your consumer is. The thing is that in this process, you are already in a price setting process and you are in a process of increasing prices and there are no absolute necessary reasons why this price increase would be landing exactly in handing over costs. In fact, companies as already Kaldor was writing in Economics Without Equilibrium, when they are faced with increasing costs and they are in a situation where they cannot respond to increased demand by increasing their supply, which is the case in face of um, broken supply chains, they tend to increase prices and they tend to increase prices in ways that hatches their profit margins. So if you see costs have gone up in the past and you think they will keep going up, then chances are you will increase your prices by somewhat more than um, by, by, by the amount um, uh, by which your costs have already gone up in the past, right? So far is kind of the, if you want so, um, expectation-based uh, pass on passing on of, of, of cost increases. But then something additional can happen where if it is the case that in a world of just-in-time delivery and highly um, efficient, highly professionalized global supply chains, before crises such as the pandemic, companies can react to increased demand in a very smooth manner. They can quite literally increase just-in-time their supply, then if demand goes up, they will respond, just as Kaida was kind of anticipating, by increasing their supply, maybe pulling some more workers in Bangladesh or China or wherever into the factories um, that, that, that they are operating, and thus um, responding to this increased uh, demand by increasing supply rather than increasing prices. Now, if these supply chains are broken, if they are broken not only for one company, but um, across a whole range of companies and in fact across a whole range of sectors in all sorts of ways. This might, for example, have to do with delayed shipping, okay? Or with the fact that certain regions have shut down where a lot of stuff um, for one sector is being produced and so on. I mean, we, we, know, we know about the supply chain issues. If this is the case, then you can get a situation where if you are Honda and I'm Toyota, and in normal times, we are competing over 
delivering our cars fast, um, having a stable price, having new models that have some new features and so on. But now I know that your supply chain is broken and you know that my supply chain is broken. And we both know that we have long wait lists and that unlike in normal times where we are trying to um, increase our market shares, we can basically not increase our market shares by aggressively um, uh, trying to recruit new customers because we have wait lists and we are struggling to even serve our existing customers, then this could create a situation where given this common pretext of broken supply chains, companies might start increasing prices by even more than their costs have increased, um, which, which is in recognition of this lack of possibility to expand your market share due to these sheer physical kinds of barriers. So this then can create a situation where a globalized supply chain system that for a long time has in fact driven prices down is now suddenly, as it, as, as it starts crumbling in these erratic ways that have been reported on um, abundantly, um, might switch from being a system that has driven consumer prices in the US down to being a system that enables um, the, the, the sudden increase in prices. Does this mean that profits and prices will keep going up? For a certain amount of time, you can get uh, some sort of a competition over who can check up their prices more, since all of these companies are responsible to their shareholders. And as the earnings calls that the Groundwork Collaborative has um, uh, has been uh, collecting and uh, sharing with the public um, have shown um, uh, quite abundantly. Um, the, 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 there is a, a moment of, um, of, of companies reporting to their shareholders that they have managed to stay ahead of the inflation curve, that they have managed to um, increase their prices more than their costs and thus they have, they have achieved record profits and so on. Now, the thing is, if all companies are trying to stay ahead of the curve, you can get some sort of a fallacy of composition type of dynamic, right? Where eventually, um, uh, 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 these, the, 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 the price increases become so generalized that it becomes, um, hard to actually stay ahead of the curve for certain companies. And now on top of this whole dynamic that was already going on in late 2021 by the latest, um, you get the war in Ukraine, which means that certain um, uh, input costs have just simply exploded and that also certain uh, transportation links have become even more vulnerable. And on top of it, you have the Omicron outbreak in China, which has exacerbated the supply chain issues um, for certain industries um, in, in ways that we actually probably didn't have in, in, in the pandemic before because we didn't have these kind of far-ranging lockdowns um, as we have been having recently in China. So this then can create a situation where now costs might be increasing in ways in which you suddenly, as a company, might no longer be able to increase your prices um, uh, sufficiently to continue um, to, to, to raise your profits. So it's quite, um, quite perceivable that there is a scenario where um, companies will actually end up in a profit squeeze type of situation, which then uh, will kind of present a situation where we would have switched from this like 
sudden very sharp increases in profits in, in 2021 to um, some sort of profit squeeze, which I'm not saying must happen, but it's possible that it could happen, um, which um, then if you take these two things together, the increases in prices that will continue to prevail since even if companies are not able to um, pass through all of their cost increases, they will still pass through some of the cost increases, could create a situation where you have profit squeeze plus inflation, which um, if this is happening, um, which I'm not saying it must happen, but I'm saying it's a possible scenario that could happen, in which case you could actually really get uh, uh, stagflation um, because these companies then would be in pretty big trouble. Um, and at the same time, prices might keep um, going up. Isabella, you, you wrote, quote, Today economists are divided into two camps on the inflation question. Team Transitory argues we ought not to worry about inflation since it will soon go away. Team Stagflation argues for fiscal restraint and a raise in interest rates. But there is a third option. The government could target the specific prices that drive inflation instead of moving to austerity, which risks a recession. Since since you wrote that in December, it seems as though Team Stagflation has decisively won the fight. And in this third option, targeted price controls never got much of a hearing. In fact, Paul Krugman ignorantly attacked you on Twitter for even suggesting it. Why have price controls, something that have indeed worked in the U.S. and elsewhere throughout history, why have they remained beyond the pale of mainstream policy and political debate? Yeah, um, I mean, first of all, we have to recognize that actually in the EU, the situation presents itself a little bit differently. Um, the EU Commission and the um, president of the EU Commission, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, who is a conservative German um, politician, not exactly known for radical economic ideas, has actually been advocating um, a form of price cap on gas um, for on, on the EU I mean, there are different versions. So she has been advocating the idea that we might that the that in the EU you might need a cap on gas prices, which would be a price control for a very important price that has been increasing in ways in which no other price has increased, and that is an important price in the sense that um, it is very upstream and it is a in core ingredient for a whole range. Of industries, I mean, in fact, um, uh, uh, in particular, the the, the manufacturing in, intensive economies such as Germany are, of course, um, very directly um, affected um, by these uh, these uh, price increases in gas. Not to mention um, the threat of actual severe shortages. So, in that sense, in the European context, where the sense of emergency after the outbreak of the Ukraine war or after the invasion of Ukraine um, by Russia has um, been, I think, uh, uh, quite considerably heightened, to put it uh, mildly, in ways in which um, my sense is it hasn't quite arrived um, in the US yet. So in this context of this very heightened sense of emergency, you do get a consideration, a very serious consideration of price controls, of a core commodity um, on the part of um, politicians who 
are not otherwise um, known to stand for um, uh, economic policy heresies. That being said, I think that there is some sort of a correlation between the sense of emergency and the willingness to engage with the idea of the state intervening into specific prices that are spiraling out of control. I mean, in fact, in 2020, when the pandemic first hit and when the sense of emergency and the sense of a switch from some sort of normal to some sort of initially panic and chaos and emergency um, in the, the United States and in Europe was just happening. Several economists, leading economists, important mainstream economists, including some who then uh, 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 reacted rather critically um, to my intervention, were themselves arguing for the possible need um, of selective price controls um, and uh, we're very widely using the analogy of a war economy as a model to, um, to respond to the challenges of the pandemic. Now, just to be sure, I have never suggested that we should replicate the price controls that were imposed during World War II, which as I'm showing in my book, um, how China escaped shock therapy have been very far-ranging and um, uh, 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 pretty universal in the United States. Um, all that I've been saying is that we that 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 we need a systematic assessment whether selective price controls um, could play a role in stabilizing prices of important goods that are um, exploding in ways that affect the economy as a whole. I think the debate over price controls, rationing, these sort of feels kind of retro, it feels kind of 1970s. There's, we've noted earlier with Isabella's piece, a strong kind of emotional sort of triggering response these words have in people that kind of makes their heads explode. But what I find fascinating about this debate is we already have price controls. We already have rationing. These things are things that are built into the economy as we currently already have it. Across Europe and the US, we have farm subsidies. That's a form of price control. In the US, you have food stamps. In Europe, you have welfare. That's also a form of essentially wage controls, right? We have minimum wages. We have all kinds of regulations on energy prices across the West. You also have uh, what was called on Wall Street the Greenspan put option in the 1990s and the 2000s, whereby whenever the price of financial assets, i.e. the stock market or housing, would go down, Greenspan would cut interest rates, throw fuel on the fire and try and prop those prices back up again. So we already have all kinds of state interventions into prices. I'm not quite sure what the sort of historical construction of price controls is and why it's why it's so triggering for people. And the flip side of this, which always goes with price controls, is 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 rationing. At the moment you're seeing a lot of people, that is pro-market people, talking about demand destruction. That's kind of the euphemism they'll use. So they'll say, well, oil prices are going high, that's going to destroy demand, and that's going to put prices down again. Now, the interesting thing about that is essentially what they're saying is people just can't afford it, right? It is self-rationing. 
if you are in Germany or, or the UK and you're finding your gas bills, electricity bills going up, you just use less of it, which is the essentially the same thing as rationing. The difference is, is that if you're rich, you don't have to do that, right? So it's kind of a selective rationing that essentially punishes and only applies um, to the poor and, and in many cases also the middle classes. And so what we're seeing here is a kind of political construction of these ideas as a way to kind of frame them even out of the debate, right? Like we can't even talk about price controls. We can't even talk about rationing. These are retro ideas. They're crazy. They're anti-economic. Serious people don't make them. But like in reality, they're already operating. They're just usually operating in ways that benefit the elites and the wealthy. Um, yeah, just to add what Robert said about the rationing, I mean, even explicit rationing has been happening already in the pandemic. Some of you might remember how when you used to walk into a store um, that you couldn't buy, you, you couldn't buy more than three rolls of toilet paper and so on. And there are several examples of this, right? You couldn't buy more than uh, two bottles of, uh, of, 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 uh, uh, sorry, what was that? Purell or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, this has happened. It has happened on the store level at the consumer end. It must also have happened um, on the end, on, on the very upstream end of the value chain where the producers of computer chips would not have sold all of their computer chips to one customer. They would not have sold all of their um, computer chips to Apple and let Dell go bust, right? They would have done some sort of rationing um, to distribute the limited supply that they have to customers in ways to that 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 maintains um, the their own customer base, which is essential for their own business, right? So in that sense, um, rationing even within companies in the face of existing shortages um, has already happened in, in ways that is not not um, visible to the consumers and that is not being discussed, but that is nevertheless the result of actual shortages. And this can take the price form, as Rupert has been illustrating, but it can also take the form of conscious decision making, such as a supermarket saying everybody cannot buy more than three rolls of toilet paper. So in that sense, um, it, it it is not a phenomenon that that would be completely new or that would be newly created by um, price controls. But it is a phenomenon of the actual shortages which prevail because of the real physical barriers um, that have occurred as a result of the pandemic and of the war. I want to close by talking about directions that this turbulence may be heading for, for the world's poorest people. Lee Harris writes in The Prospect, quote, The looming food crisis is being cast as an inevitable consequence of an exogenous shock, war in the world's breadbasket. But for the developing world, it could be caused as much by the economic and trade policy reaction of advanced economies, monetary and fiscal tightening, as by the war itself. Developing countries like Sri Lanka face compounding crises as richer countries wind down pandemic-era monetary and fiscal supports and tighten their balance sheets. Strained post-pandemic budgets, high debt, and low foreign exchange reserves are a flammable mix. What sort of crisis could this flammable mix lead to for the global South? Are, are there echoes here of the lead-up to the Latin American debt crisis of the 1980s or more recently 
the so-called taper tantrum of 2013 when the Fed and the ECB pulled back on quantitative easing and as a result, investment capital suddenly fled emerging markets? I think what we're facing here is the return of the real. For too long, supply chains have been more or less working. Prices have been more or less stable. That is, I'm talking about in the West um, with sort of low inflation. And the crises that we faced essentially came from paper markets, right? The fictional world of finance, whether that was a tech bubble in the 1990s, a sort of derivative driven housing crash in the 1980s, and then kind of morphing into these, sorry, this dog, these, <laughs> literally like trying to scramble out of my arms as I'm talking. Um, just give me a second. The mushrooming, you know, derivative explosion that occurred after Lehman Brothers. These were all problems in the fictional financial world, right? The actual physical world was actually popping along pretty well. And so I think a lot of our mindset around these issues was defined around things like, you know, uh, financial fragility, too big to fail, quantitative easing, central bank interventions. This is very much the debate we've been kind of living with for much of my life in the West. But now what we're seeing is the return of these real crises, right? Whether it's the 1970s, we're now talking about these kind of genuine shortages. The idea that, you know, Russia and Ukraine export are responsible for 25% of the world's wheat exports. But again, once we kind of scratch beneath these narratives, I'm not actually so convinced that the that the real world is necessarily returning as this kind of Malthusian monster that's going to eat us all. When we look at those exports, for example, they're really, most food is actually produced and consumed in their own countries. And so when we look at that 25% figure, in fact, it might make more sense to think about 0.9% of the world's wheat deliveries are going to be disrupted. When you then think of the enormous reserves we have um, in the US and China, it then doesn't look quite so scary, right? We're not necessarily in this Malthusian nightmare. We're back to financial assets, financial pricing of commodities, reacting, sending those prices across across the world and making these things unaffordable for people. And so I think the way in which I think of these is we've got to always be razor sharp in our analysis of where is the chaos coming from? Is this something that's rooted in reality? And if it is, how big is the problem and how can we solve it? And then how can we then get the financial markets to to reflect that reality and not, as they often do, some kind of fictional worst case scenario? Isabella? Yeah, I just want to emphasize that I think that the current moment is so complex from my vantage point and that I think it's extremely, extremely difficult to predict what will happen. I just want to kind of preface um, what I'm going to say with this. Um, as regards global food markets, my colleague Jayati Ghosh has already been warning in December 2021 of the very sharply rising prices um, of staple foods and the implications for developing countries, um, drawing on uh, the price indices and research by the FAO. Um, so, and this situation certainly has exacerbated. I think the big danger is that rich countries and countries that are producing substantial amounts of these important um, food items might react with some sort of export limitations, which could exacerbate 
the shortages and could drive up the prices in even more intense ways, which then um, could create very severe problems for those countries that are dependent on imports in a way um, that would um, drive up domestic prices in ways that could price out um, large parts of the population, um, or at least price them out in ways that would um, create enormous hardship. I think we also have to remember, and this actually connects to the work of another colleague of mine here at UMass, Leon Snidikumana and James Boyce, who just published a book on capital flight from Africa, that a lot of the exports from the African continent are, of course, also in commodities. And these commodities have also experienced very sharply rising prices. However, the revenues from these commodity sales often end up um, in channels that amount to capital flight, which means that these resources are not necessarily available locally in order to, um, to, to compensate for the rising food prices, which means that um, even though all of these commodity prices have been going up, the distribution of the revenues from these price increases is not necessarily such that we can say, okay, that, that this will just a kind of even out. So in that sense, I think we are faced with a very challenging situation and the warnings of um, the UN around the threat of famine and food availability, I think, have to be taken very seriously. And then just quickly, could you touch on beyond the food prices, this Lee Harris's point about the impact rising interest rates could could have on indebted, heavily indebted poorer countries? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yes. I mean, the, the great tragedy of the Volcker shock was, of course, that it created these uh, debt crises in Latin America and other global South countries. So if you take together... I mean, if you are a country that ha that faces sharply um, increasing prices for imported food items, which, yes, let, let it only be 10%, it's still uh, substantial enough to affect the domestic price level. This country then, on top of it, is uh, faced with rising interest rates um, on credit that it might need to compensate for these very rapidly rising prices, not only for foodstuff, but also other commodities such as oil and, and energy um, goods, then this could result in a very boring kind of scenario. Has been enormously focused on the European economies in the United States, and there has been surprisingly little discussion around what the repercussions of, that, of these interest rate hikes would be um, for the global south, especially since um, the, the historical reference point for the current inflation has been the inflation of the 1970s. And um, the, the, the increase in interest rates has had these devastating effects um, on, in particular, Latin American countries. Well, Rupert Russell and Isabella Weber, thank you both very much. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks so much, Dan. Rupert Russell is a writer, filmmaker, and the author of Price Wars, How the Commodities Market Made Our Chaotic World. Isabella Weber is a professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and the author of How China Escaped Shock Therapy. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. 
As Marx once said, after noting that, upon the different forms of property, upon the social conditions of existence, rises an entire superstructure of distinct and peculiarly formed sentiments, illusions, modes of thought, and views of life. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel, Gemma Sack, and Mariel Solomon. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please also take a moment to rate and review us. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. So is spreading the word to your friends. Indeed, telling people that you know online or in real life why you like the podcast, why they would like the podcast is very, very helpful. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. Huge.